Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, welcome to the main stage of the RSA Public Events Series. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. I'm head, uh, my name is Alan Lockie, I'm head of the Future Work Programme here. And I'm delighted because we have one of the uh, cutting edge thinkers in the future of work at the moment who has published a fantastic book called The Nowhere Office. Her name, of course, is Julia Hobsbawm. You're all here for that reason, so that's not a surprise to you. Uh, she is, uh, where to begin? She's chair of the Demos Workshift Commission. She's chair of Editorial Intelligence. She's a leading expert on organizational culture, networking, purposeful businesses, and an award-winning author in many of those areas too. Her new book, which I can't recommend highly enough, is ram-packed with actionable business insights about this radical world we're now trying to engage in, both in and hopefully, fingers crossed, beyond the pandemic as we move into what is definitely and decisively a new era of work. So saddle up, we're about to get going and I'm gonna ask the first question to Julia, which is, you've called the book The Nowhere Office. That is a fantastically poetic phrase, much better than the usual kind of public policy uh, or technology-driven babble that we often speak about in the future of work debate. Could you explain to us what it means? Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, what, a, what an introduction, my God, no pressure there. Um, I, I am interested in this uh, corner of the world that is the future of work, as we all are, because we all work and because work wasn't working brilliantly before the pandemic. And I think that one of the one of the um, byproducts, positive byproducts of the pandemic is it's, it, 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 it is occasioned a great reevaluation, less so a, a great resignation, uh, which has been slightly overplayed. And at the centre of this debate about the future of work is the future of where we work and why we work and how we work and when we work. And at the centre of that is the office. And the phrase the nowhere office came into my head when I was thinking about all the offices I'd worked in during pandem the pandemic in lockdown, sitting here in this room. And I had a sort of flashback to the first big office I worked in at Penguin Books in the Kings Road in London when I was 21. And the song that played in the office amongst the filing cabinets was Talking Heads, Road to Nowhere. It was 1985. And I thought that is the moment we're in. We're in a nowhere place between one era and another. So I call the nowhere office a moment in the history of work. And obviously it's a very redolent phrase. Lots of people say, oh, do you mean it's no office? No, I don't. I mean, it's really the now and the here of nowhere, which is a moment we have to take stock of and move beyond. So that's, that's my spiel about why the nowhere office, Alan. And I think one of the book's great strengths really is that you place many of the changes that we've all, or many of us, particularly those working in, in what we might call the knowledge economy, have experienced during that phase. You know, that, that experience of the different offices, the different places of work that we've had to sort of wrestle with as we have experienced the pandemic, but you place them in a kind of historical sweep. 
so you identify four phases, the optimism, the mezzanine phase, the co-working phase, and now the NOAA office phase. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about those for our audience today. Well, I think it's no exaggeration to say that the world of work is facing the biggest upheaval in 100 years. And specifically, I think it's facing the biggest upheaval in 70 years since the end of the Second World War, because that was another moment when the world was united by chaos and disorder and a desire to rebuild and reset and reframe. And I thought about what the office meant post-war, the era of the skyscraper, the era of what I call optimism, running between about 1945 and 1977, when the digital world was not in the room in the office, really, uh, and the serried ranks of grey desks, row after row after row, was the, was the main image and symbol of the office, but it was also about a simplicity of purpose, which was to build and grow capitalism and the economy. Um, I should say, by the way, that um, technology runs through all of the four phases. And I should also say that the office isn't every worker. And we can talk a bit about the inequalities and what I would call the hybrid haves and have nots. So with those sort of caveats out of the way, I think it was important to remember that the office used to be a place that was fixed, that you went to and came out of because that was where you did your work in a fixed place. There was no real executive travel. Um, the corner office was a, a, a very vivid and masculine display of power. By 1977, things were a bit more complex, a bit more nuanced, a bit more mixed. That's why I call it the mezzanine years, the computer and digital well, it was pre-digital, but the computer was arriving in the office, the role of women, uh, the beginnings of discussions about equality and inequality, sadly, much less so discussions around racial inequality in the workplace, but some. Um, and the mezzanine years lasted up until uh, around about 2006, and they were years of uncertainty. And I would say that this phase, the fourth phase, has echoes of the optimism phase, echoes of the mezzanine, and echoes of the phase that ended abruptly in May, in March 2020, which is what I call the co-working years. And I suppose the world of work as we're experiencing now and evolving from bears the most direct relation to those co-working years, 2007 to 2020. And if there was one book that encapsulates that moment, that began with Facebook and Twitter and Airbnb. It was the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which was the first to really articulate the leitmotif that I think dominates the nowhere office, which is mobility. Technology, ambition, generational shifts all happened around that co-working phase, which put the idea of freedom, flexibility, mobility, into, no pun intended, the room. And I think that phase we're now in, the nowhere office, a liminal space where everything is up for grabs, that question of mobility, freedom, flexibility, and fairness are now the dominant themes. I think it's a really interesting point and something that, that, that comes through 
in the book, which is perhaps an underexplored vector for change in the future work, is identity. We've obviously seen a number of uh, movements in the political space that have been based on identity have, you know, breakthrough and, 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 and surface in ways uh, during the pandemic that, that, that they hadn't before. And really, to, to, to a certain extent, you know, people talk about this being an age of identity politics. Politics has always been about identity to a certain extent, but this is something that that, that is really strong in your book compared to the, the, the overall future work debate. And I, I'm really interested for you to kind of share why you think it's so important and why you think it will start to change behaviour and values in the Nowhere Office era. Okay, well, I mean, thank you for asking me to explain my thesis, which my readers may not agree with, and I really look forward to the debates. So I hope I'm part of stimulating a debate about what happens next. So the context historically is a framing. Um, and then I talk about six particular shifts. Uh, one shift is the way we're approaching time and place. Uh, there's a shift around management and leadership. There's a shift around health and well-being. There's a shift around purpose and productivity. There's a shift around networks and there's a shift around identity. And the point about identity, I think, is that A, don't we know it? Identity, culture, politics have infused every corner of our lives, including work. But I'm putting the view carefully, I hope, with sensitivity, I hope, that the identity you bring as an individual atomized self to work, which has been very celebrated, is probably going to matter less in the nowhere office. Why? Because work itself is having an identity crisis, the meaning of work, how it takes place, how we are remunerated. It's all very febrile, very uncertain and matters most. How do we earn our living? But secondly, I think that the um, work and the stage of your life you're in when you do that work is probably going to matter more as a unifying feature than, as I say, you know, what your gender is or your sexual orientation, which is not to say that fights for equality don't need to carry on happening and will happen. But I'm talking about the idea that the workplace became this sort of place where you know, pronouns abound. I have my doubts about whether that's going to last and whether if I'm really candid, it should. What I think matters is how can the workplace that takes your skills, your energy, your time, a part of your life, deliver for you so that you can deliver for it. And that's the conversation I want to be having. And against that framing, I'm not sure it matters so much as what you call yourself and how you identify so much as are you young? Are you older? Are you inexperienced and need mentoring? Do you have caring responsibilities? Can you afford to work remotely, partly remotely and so on? So I want to put the issues that make work workable more into the room rather than the politics of identity. It's really interesting. Um... I think we'll change tack now and ask you a slightly more practical question because I mean many of our people listening to this today might be going back into the physical office for sort of the first time in a while we've obviously had in, this, in, in the UK at least a, 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 an Omicron wave of, of, of the COVID-19 that we've just sort of worked our way through. These questions 
are live in so many workplaces and uh, are sources of conflict and tension and sometimes not. Um, what sort of practical tips would you give to leaders and managers and employees too uh, about trying to navigate that space where we might be moving into the nowhere office uh, era and wrestling with some of the challenges of hybrid or remote work? Well, I think we're in the nowhere office era. Uh, I think it's going to last for a few years. I think that we're also in the era in which hybrid is going to be the most workable model, but hybrid is hard to implement in a blanket way. I think there's an asymmetry to people being partly in the office and partly digital. Um, I see this all the time uh, that, you know, it's sort of almost better if everybody's digitally online or in the room, but once you get hybrid of uh, presence, that becomes difficult. Managing hybrid time schedules is also complex, but what the best leaders are understanding is that a much more equal division of labor has got to happen to be productive and to get stuff done. And that involves appreciating where people are in their lives and the people who work appreciating what needs to work for the workplace, a, a much more iterative, experimental, um, listening relationship needs to happen. Now in practice, that's really variable. So big, big corporates are refurbing massively multi-million pound developments to put running tracks on the roofs and all you can eat buffets and anything to induce and replicate um, uh, palaces of presenteeism, which is what the big muscular office always used to be. Many others are recognizing that that just won't work. My own belief is that what we need to appreciate is that the office becomes a place you visit. I think the metaphor I'd use is that we've all left home. Once you leave home, you never completely move back in. I mean, you do, you can, but mostly psychologically you've left home and you return as a visitor for family occasions, for special reasons, for drop-ins. Now, if you take that idea that the digital technology capability is so proven since the pandemic, which it undeniably was, and I'm a big critic of the machine over the human, but I have to bow down to the greatness of the technology that we witnessed on the whole. If you appreciate that that technology can really enable a lot of knowledge work that happens with keyboards and even with meetings, then what the office is for is clearly something different. And it therefore is a place that's visited for community, for collaboration, for gossip, for social reasons, a bit like a family. And I think that is a better way to frame it rather than how can we get the bang for our buck on the, on the square footage we've paid for? Um, or how can we insist that everybody's in because it's a nightmare to manage them if they're not? I, I didn't really give you tips there. I apologize. <laughs> I didn't very, give very you hard. tips. The reason, very, why, very the reason why I didn't give you tips is because I think workplace by workplace, uh, month by month, an enormous experimentation has to take place. I think this is the biggest test 
of the biggest buzzword that existed pre-pandemic and that buzzword was agile well let's have it leaders let's show how agile you are and the truth is most of them aren't there needs to be a real reskilling amongst leaders and managers that is i suppose there are two elephants in the room i think i'm calling out in this book um, because it's a statement of the obvious that things have changed I think the elephants in the room I'm calling out is the woeful state, generally speaking, of leaders and managers to really help workers do their best work. And with it, the whole concept of what a functional well workplace is. There was a quite a lot more emphasis, just to be provocative, on the beanbag side of well-being, rather than the idea that you help people do good work because it is well managed because there's a point to it so i'm really an evangelist for great work and to be frank where you work and when you work and how you work all flows from that yeah that's a really really powerful insight and it's it's true we we obviously operate in this space as well and it's really hard to distill the context we're in into kind of you know cookie cutter type insights that people can replicate in every workplace and every workplace is different but one of the quotes that really you picked out in your book that I think is really really powerful was that organizations need to find what their employees want from work and you are so positive about the fact that they want to work and we would agree with that too at the RSA but you have to see them as having agency in that process rather than just being a kind of passive uh, tool in the corporate strategy. I also think, and I move a lot in management circles, I'm actually a, a total management geek. I was totally sold on it ever since. I was a, a cub journalist. I didn't last very long in journalism, in television, and I interviewed the late Sir Peter Parker, um, former uh, head of British Rail, and he wrote a memoir. And what interested me most about his memoir was how did he even think he could get the trains to run on time? I love that stuff. I'm really interested in how work works. But just to be personal for a minute in terms of how does that work in practice, it is back to the identity of the workplace, just like personal identity is about knowing, if you like, your style. So I grew up not feeling confident, not feeling pretty, not feeling anything. And I learned to be myself, to have my style. And I just have one rule in the morning. Do I feel comfortable? Not do I look the right part for what other people expect, but do I feel comfortable? And sometimes that's pretty random and weird looking and other times it's not. My point is not to sort of overshare me and my life. My point is to say, just as Gloria Steinem memorably said, the personal is political in regard to feminism, the personal is professional in the workplace. What we feel as humans, whether we feel comfortable, whether we feel motivated, whether we feel aligned, whether we feel listened to, is going to determine whether we're doing what we do well. And all the systems and mantras and all that other stuff, we're realising that was all useless, really. That's not what counted. And so we need to just begin again really workplace by workplace and that is a fantastically exciting moment i think that really opens up a kind of question about something else you you talk about in the book and and, and throughout your career really which is about you know purpose and organizational purpose and 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 the role of purpose in the nowhere office seems to be 
what you're saying in the book, it's changing and it's going to become bigger. Could you could you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, I think the first thing is that I've been writing about connectedness in the workplace and in our lives for, for a while. Um, I wrote a book in 2017 called Fully Connected, and I've been very interested in our disconnection and our connection uh, in, in our lives generally. And it was clear to me that the workplace was sick and not well, and the endemic levels of stress and the stagnant productivity and in the World Health Organization even listed stress, um, a major, major cause of which is work, uh, as the um, epidemic of the 21st century. They cited this before the pandemic. So the toxic workplace, the fact that we all love culture that shows how effed up work is, you know, succession, the office, you name it, you know, there's no shortage of ways to, to confirm the fact that, that work doesn't work, uh, which isn't to say that work isn't also a place for camaraderie and a place for learning and growing. I, I, but it is to say that when people do their best work, all the data shows they do it because they're given agency and because what they do matters to them. Nobody does good work when they couldn't really give a stuff or when they are appallingly managed. Now, this is not to say, you know, everybody should and will and must love their jobs. People have different connections, but I believe that work does matter, that work is fulfilling, that there is not an economic alternative to work. I'm not in favor of the universal basic income. We can discuss that separately. I may know less than I should about it, but my instinct is not to take work away from people and fund them to not work. It is to pay them fairly and to manage them well. That brings in the piece about purpose, which is inexorably linked to productivity in my view, which is if you, you know, people have talked for years about how difficult it is to measure productivity, especially in the knowledge economy. Very sage people have sort of slightly wagged their fingers and said, Julia, you know, it's terribly difficult to measure. And I thought, is it? If you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and when it needs to be done by and you're up for it, you're productive. I don't think it's very complicated. And so the truth is we need to put that front and centre because that is behind all the glass door rankings and the best places to work and all that stuff is are we doing something that there's a point to? I believe if you look at the epic wretchedness going on in the civil service and around politics in the UK at the moment, you can see these are not well-run workplaces. These are not people that feel purpose and they're not productive. I mean, DVLA, just to give you one example of a government department, you know, with, with full respect to hardworking people within DVLA, you're not telling me that's a functional productive department because it's not, because it's become impossible to be functional departments right across industry, right across organizations, because there's too many layers of nonsense, rather than saying, come on, we're in this together, we can make something good. So wherever you see bad, unproductive workplaces, I think you see wretched, miserable people. Yeah, I uh, resist the temptation to lurch into a defense of the RSA's position on UBI, which is about incentivizing people, incentivizing people 
to work and to turn down bad work rather than to uh, stop working. But we'll move on. Well, no, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, all credit to you having those conversations. And you may be right. You know, I'm, I'm being strident, I suppose, um, not necessarily. Uh, I don't know every corner of those arguments, but my my gut instinct is that we should be having more conversations that are about pro-work and injecting more meaning for more people is, is partly the point. Secondly, it's a little bit like the campaign for the four-day week. I kind of end up saying I'm against it. I'm not literally against it, but I'm against the idea of a kind of cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, and I think we can agree with that. Um, I mean, another persistent theme in the book that comes in at many levels, which we should probably talk about, is, is, is inequalities. And the challenge really here is that we found this when we've explored hybrid work, uh, is that on the one level, you know, you want to be optimistic and that the, the connection are, you know, finally, the kind of vestige of place finally aligning with time so that you have flexibility over both is a fantastic opportunity. But on the other hand, we know from the evidence of the pandemic that people, whilst they use that, that time to do some things which are good for their well-being, they also use it to do more work in some cases. And we also worry that, you know, if there is a kind of return to presenteeism, then certain people who we know gravitate towards flexible work in the past, women especially, and, and, and caring people, caring responsibilities, might then get locked out. So there's a there's a lot of things to unpack about the moment. Where on the one hand there's an opportunity, but on the other hand there's a there's a fear that inequalities could be deepened. Uh, how, how do you respond to that, and what, what's your reflections on on, on the moment uh, we're moving into? Well, I'm very interested in what I call the the hybrid haves and the hybrid have-nots. I mean, even with the caveat that. Not all work in the world is done in office works. The office has become a byword for modern work. The knowledge worker is never far behind. And that of knowledge workers, not all are as able to work flexibly and to choose their hours and their place of work. And that the literal costs of working from home where you don't have a ring light and a good broadband and you don't have a private space and you don't have um, childcare, to cover uh, and your you know there's surveillance software on your computer and so when you go to the loo you worry that you know almost like an amazon worker in a in a warehouse you know are you going to be docked or is it going to appear in your appraisal so there are all sorts of inequalities that might show up differently or more in the working from home but again i don't think that's as much the point as whether the workplace you're working in is paying you fairly for the work you're doing, giving you the skills and letting you co-design how you work and when you work. In other words, it's always been the case that good workplaces listen to their workers if they say, I need this office chair or I need, um, you know, to design a little bit into my schedule. That That's what enlightened workplaces have already done. I mean, I, I suppose I want to admit that I'm not advocating uh, that this is the first time the idea of a fair, innovative workplace has been mooted. Of course not. But what I'm saying is that um, it can be fairer because, for instance, um, Zoom, it turns out, is regarded as safe by 
um, some ethnic minorities who feel that they're slightly gaslit or that there are sort of microaggressions at work. Now, it, that never occurred to me. Um, there is a feeling of equality when everybody's in the same size box. Uh, going back to the idea of style, some people feel their clothes aren't right or, you know, they, um, they haven't got, you, you know, the inequalities show up all over the place in the office as well as out of the office. Yeah. So I think um, there are these questions. I like what the trade union prospect is doing around um, what they've, um, you know, the, the digital fairness, that if you are expected to be always on and being working beyond what you're being paid for, um, that's not fair either. So we need to relook at all these issues, not from a position of adver adversary, um, but from a position of, well, what can we co-create that is right and fair? And for some people, it will be, frankly, a bursary to help them with their electricity. Mm. For some people, it will be a tax incentive. For others, it will simply be the time and that that will be fair to them. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's true to say that whatever system you have, you know, inequalities, if you if the workplace is badly managed, will find a way of getting into the cracks and exerting their, their power. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think that is right, that underneath it all comes down to the right leadership and the right systems that are iterative and customizable enough to respond fairly. But I think workers need to be fair too. I think there's an interesting case study I used in the book of Twitter, uh, a, a, a bloke called Dantley Davis, who's now left Twitter, annoyingly, just after I sent the book to press, but he was head of culture at Twitter and he had a horrible, you oh, know, yeah. break them down kind of, you know, oversharing honesty, the worst of the 360 degree appraisal, which by the way, I'm against. Um, and, and yet he was hounded mercilessly on social media and his own mental health then began to suffer. Now, my point is, even though he was in the wrong, he, he you know, you can't meet like with like. Yeah. So I want a fairness of attitude here. I want everyone to sort of slightly adjust their set. It isn't them and us. It isn't top and bottom. It's meeting in the middle going, we are in this project together. That I think is what was so shocking about the Downing Street revelations that there really was a bunker mentality. There was a bunker mentality that just excluded reality. We all need to keep it real in the nowhere office or we're not gonna do good work and we're not gonna have great working lives. I mean, there's a number of ways we can look at Boris Johnson uh, as not necessarily the model for authentic leadership, but... <laughs> um, well, yes, I'm afraid that's true. One, that's true. One question I, I wanted to ask you about, actually, really, we sort of touched, touched on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about technology and being surprised at how, how well sort of technology could pro provide a digital facet meal of face-to-face experiences we just mentioned it in the context of zoom and diversity there as well but one thing that i've certainly found hard to replicate 
is networking. And so there are some fears that there's a key part of uh, career building, which is useful for progression, which people who are in the NOAA office might miss out on, which they didn't, which, which they would have got previously, but now don't. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, because in the book, you're quite optimistic about the ability to network in the nowhere office and even talk about things like a diversity dividend. There could be opportunities there. Uh, you're also one of the world's leading experts on networking. So I thought it would be good to pick your brains on this particular issue and how we network in the nowhere office. Well, I, I've argued for years that people don't understand the science behind networks and that they think that networking is working a room rather than building relationship and trust and equality and confidence. And that when you look at the science, the social science behind networks from, you know, bowling, bowling alone back to Bourdieu, you know, the, the reality is networks are uh, very, very equalizing forces. And uh, what we need to do is enlarge networks, not shrink them. And young people in particular are very, very good at having digital networks and in-person networks and a blend. If you go back to what I call the co-working years, um, they were um, in some ways uh, quite a lot of siloed networks, women-only networks, disability-only networks, uh, networks for special interests rather than what the network science shows, which is true diversity of ideas and age and opinion and race, all who are interested in something else do very well together and build relationships that grow. And of course, online networks are much more accessible to people and they thrived pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. So I moved the editorial intelligence networks onto WhatsApp as an experiment. I had considerable doubts about it I was astonished how effective they were. In particular, we received funding just before the pandemic from Google for something called the Social Capital Network, which actually Munira Mirza had championed at Downing Street, which is for uh, black and minority ethnic individuals who didn't have networks to meet more experienced, um, you know, often white, not always white, people through our industry and culture and to connect them with a with a position of equality that's always my belief is that it's not about the on bar it's about saying come into the room together so google gave us this funding and it was all going to be very in real life based and then the pandemic happened and we moved most of it onto whatsapp and uh connected people individually by Zoom, if you like, offline, off that WhatsApp. And it, it has been the most wonderful, wonderful thing. And I was astonished at how well it worked so much so that post-pandemic, our own network club at Editorial Intelligence is a hybrid. We do in real life much less frequently than we do Zoom booms and WhatsApps. So networking, the fundamentals are that anyone can access them if there's equality to the networks in the first place and that networks are um, the lifeblood of organizations where we can see the change in the nowhere office is twofold one is give people the budget to go out and network networking pre-pandemic was very executive led you didn't see many juniors having lunch in the ivy club in london right because they didn't get the time and they didn't get the money give people the money and the time to go out and meet people for coffee 
and to see what happens. That's how networks form in real life. And the second thing is this comes back to the point about the drop in and the office as a place to gather and to convene. I am really not anti-office. I'm not saying the nowhere office is no office. What I'm saying is quite clearly in networks in particular, cyberspace has actually shown it works. So let's not junk it because we want to go back to, to real life. Back to real life is back to life differently. Yeah. Starting to run out of time, unfortunately, but I wanted, as I like to talk about policy, to throw just one policy question in at the end. And so obviously, as you describe very well in the book, in fact, the NOAA office means a great societal shift. We can talk about the way the patterns of people and mobility will change city centres, for example, and there'll be distributional conflicts perhaps that come with that. What one policy change would you like to see to enable us to move into this space of doing the nowhere office, but in a good work way? Uh, well, I suppose it would be all around this right to request flexible working, um, which has been, you know, very back room for a while. So I think before you can have a single policy, you actually have to dive into every which way around it. I know that the Prime Minister's Business Council doesn't really have much on how we're working. I really do feel, you know, the RSA would be a very good place working with Demos that I'm, uh, you know, playing a little part in, you know, a real deep dive into asking what are the key questions that we now need to answer going forward. I'll give you one example. It's the 30th anniversary, I think, since the last big health and safety at work law. Um, just by way of how times change, number six on the list when that law came into force 30 years ago was something that is probably number one for offices now, and that's ventilation, mm -hmm. right? Priority shift. You can't have anyone back to an office now going forward that isn't well ventilated. I mean, that's just a sort of minor point. So what are the issues that all office workers want to see Obviously, flexible working rights is the first one, but there are others, uh, especially involving tax breaks um, and so on. So I think we need to have probably a national government led commission on work, really. Sounds like a, an opportunity for all of us. Uh, and with that, we're going to draw this to a close. Uh, all I would like to say at the end is. You know, it's absolutely fantastic to have had you here. The 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 nowhere office is it's out. It's already out, isn't it? Just check. It's coming out on the seventeenth of February. Seventeenth. So you can pre-order it from all uh, bookstores. Uh, ideally, ones with great ethical principles who embody uh, the good work spirit contained within the pages. Uh, but I'll leave that to our audience to decide. Um, you'll also find links. Uh, on our Future of Work programme website to some of the themes that we've talked today. Uh, you can read more about what we're working on right now and how we're also getting involved in trying to shape uh, what we call, like, like Julia, in fact, a, a healthy hybrid uh, approach to work 
in the nowhere office but it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation you can continue that conversation on our social channels uh, by going to the hashtag hashtag nowhere office uh, it's been a real pleasure and thank you please do tune in again thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations